0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello, everyone. My name is Susie Squire, and I'm the president of the Retail and Hospitality ISAC.
1: And I'm Luke Vanderland, vice president of membership and marketing. And this is the RHISAC podcast. Been in a very busy couple of weeks for us here at the RHISAC. In the last month, it seems like we've done a complete tour of the U.S. with four regional workshops in four weeks, a CISO event and dinner, and then a networking breakfast at RSA.
0: Yeah, and on top of that, Luke, this week we're hosting our second APAC virtual workshop for our folks in the Asia-Pacific area. And Luke and I are going to be flying across the pond soon to InfoSec Europe, where we'll be exhibiting and hosting a networking happy hour.
1: Very excited to be going to Europe with you, Susie. And it's been great getting to know more of our members, finally seeing them face to face after a couple of years and talking to them about the challenges they're facing. You know, one thing I've noticed is that while each region has their own unique pain points, there's also a lot of similarities and a global nature to the threat landscape.
0: Yeah, the cyber criminals know no jurisdictions, right? No, no bounds. In today's episode, a few members of our Intel team are actually gonna join us and have a conversation about what that global threat landscape looks like and how the entire community can benefit from sharing across country lines.
1: Right, and then after that, Susie, you're sitting down with Fred Knipe, founder and CEO of CyberGRX. Fred's going to share with you how the RHISAC members can use CyberGRX's risk assessment data as a benchmark, comparing themselves to their peers in the retail industry. All right, but uh, first, let's get started with our Intel team guests from the RHISAC. We're joined by Bradley Logan, our Director of Security Engineering and Integrations, Lee Clark, Cyber Threat Intelligence Analyst and Writer, and J.J. Josing, a Principal Threat Researcher. Thanks very much, guys, for joining us today. We brought you here to talk a little bit about uh, the global threat landscape. Since the RHISAC has several events this month, focused on our non-North American audience. Just last night for us, but during the day for them, we hosted our second annual virtual APAC workshop for our members who have employees and users and teams in the Asia-Pacific region. Next week, I, as we mentioned, Susie and I are going to be over in London to participate in the InfoSecurity Europe conference, where we'll be exhibiting and hosting a networking happy hour I'd uh, love to see you there. Anybody who has a team in London or uh, who will be in London for that conference or not, you don't have to be at the conference, please join us at that happy hour. It's on the evening of the 22nd, Wednesday, the 22nd. And you may have heard of the transit strike that's happening, but it shouldn't affect where we're going to be because uh, overground services, the new Elizabeth line, the Docklands Light Railway should all be running just fine. So you should be able to access uh, the location for that. No problem at all. So no excuses. Please join us there. But Let's get started by talking about a threat intel platform that is popular in Europe. As we talk to members and prospects in Europe, it's, it's quite widely used there, and it's gaining popularity amongst our members in the U.S. and North America, and that's MISP. Now, the M in MISP stands for malware, but it's much more than that these days. JJ, um, let's start with you. Can you tell us what MISP is and why it's on the RHISAC's radar?
2: Yeah, certainly. So MISP is short for the Malware Information Sharing Platform. And the project started back around June in 2011, when there was lots of frustrations of too many indicators of compromise being shared by email or in PDF documents, and they weren't parsable by automated machines. Then in 2012, it was presented to NATO, who looked at other products on the market at the same time, but then they deemed the openness of MIST to be a great advantage, in which NATO then hired a full-time developer, and collaboration on the project began to improve the code base and to add more features and it's now maintained by CIRCLE, or the Computer Incident Response Center of Luxembourg, and it's a generic threat intel platform for storing, sharing, and working on intelligence at large. And MISP has been on the RHISAC's radar since about 2018 when AT&T gave a presentation on MISP and it sparked some interest among several members. And as the member interest continued to grow, the RHISAC formed the MISP Working Group, which initially was a place to collaborate and help troubleshoot MISP-related issues And members, as members, were trying to stand up their own instances. And RHISAC was then able to get Circle MISP developers to provide a two-day hands-on training during the RHISAC's 2019 Retail Cyber Intelligence Summit. And we're currently aware of several members using MISP as their main threat intel platform, as well as a handful of others who have expressed interest in one way or another.
1: That's excellent. so so what's the um, compelling interest for members to use MISP or to adopt MIST versus any other tool? Uh, like, what are some of the benefits?
2: Well, first and foremost is it is an open source software, and the MISP ecosystem is all about accessibility and interoperability. The software is free to use. The data formats and the API are completely open standards. so what you see is what you get. And if you don't see something that you want, there's always the option to customize or extend it by contributing to the project. It, it cool. also helps yeah. to um, simplify threats. And I think, I think we all know it's pretty sad to have a lot of data and not be able to use it because it's too much work. And the primary goal of MISP is to be used and simplicity is the driving force behind the project. So whether you're storing, using, or sharing information about threats, that sh- should not be difficult. And MISP is there to help you get the most out of your data without unmanageable complexity. And thanks to MISP, you can store your indicators of compromise in a structured manner and truly leverage the value of your data in an automated manner without extended effort. Also, uh, visualization. So seeing helps understanding. And MISP comes with many visualization options, which aids in helping analysts find the answers they're looking for. This gives you outstanding opportunities to aggregate threat information and take the process of trying to understand how all of this data fits together by telling a broader story. And it can also help transform technical data or indicators of compromise into more of that traditional like cyber threat intelligence. Excellent. And then I think lastly uh, would be uh, like the, the ease of sharing. So <clears throat> as we all know, sharing is caring and it's it's very vital in fast and effective detection of attacks. As a lot of our members are already aware of, quite often similar organizations are targeted by the same threat actor, and whether that's in the same campaign or different campaigns, and makes it easier for you to share with but also receive from trusted partners or trust groups. And sharing enables the collaborative analysis that can prevent you and your teams from doing work that somebody else had already done before.
1: Right. Well, as we like to say, the S in IStack stands for sharing, which it does, and we like to remind everybody of that. So, Brad, since sharing is such a huge part of the RHSX purpose, I understand we have a community instance of MISP that's been spun up and that members can test out now in addition to our TrueStar offering.
3: Uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, as JJ mentioned earlier, there's been interest in MISP for a number of years now. Uh, we kept hearing from members who, who love that MISP is an open source tool that's relatively easy to set up and manage. And so, you know, talking with our MISP working group, it became apparent pretty quickly that members saw a lot of value in an RHI stack community instance of MISP. So we started looking into standing up our own instance. Um, And the the MISP project GitHub actually has a repository with cloud-ready images of MISP. And, And there's even an AWS Community AMI, which if you don't know, is an Amazon machine image. It's like a template that contains the full software configuration. And it makes it super easy to spin up a simple MISP server as an AWS EC2 instance. You can get going with uh, with your, your own little basic instance of MISP super quick if you're an AWS user. And uh, there's you know a lot of capability to stand up in other cloud providers as well. So anyway, that's where we started exploring MISP. And yeah, we now have a live version available for our members to access and connect with.
1: That's terrific. So um integration assistance is, is really part of what you provide members here at the RHS. Like it's a big part of what you provide. Um, and you frequently help members connect their tools for better automation. How have you seen members integrating MISP with their other tools?
3: Well, you know, we're we're kind of just getting started with MISP here, but we, we have seen members already taking advantage of it. So you know one of the benefits of MISP is its ability to easily sync data between instances. So we've seen a lot of members connect their instances to ours to easily share data. And we've even had members stand up their own instances just because they've heard we have ours and they're they're excited and interested in, in being part of it. So, you know, they, they've they spun up their own instances to get in on the action. So that's kind of the, the easiest, simplest way and, like I said, one of the core benefits of MISP. But beyond that, uh, MISP has a full REST API, including a PyMISP library for Python users to take advantage of that makes it super easy to access that threat intel and, and share back as well. And as I'm sure you can imagine, being open source, MISP has a ton of ready-made integration available for users to uh, configure. So, you know, whether you have a tool like CrowdStrike, ThreatConnect, ThreatStream, Microsoft Sentinel, if you want to pull data in from VirusTotal, the main tools, whatever it may be, all of these things have integrations out there in open source that you can take advantage of. There's a lot of possibilities.
1: That's terrific. So I know we're still in our kind of infancy of getting this, this going for the RHISAC, but if we have any members listening who are interested in joining your efforts, our efforts, should they reach out to you? Like what's, what are the opportunities for them?
3: Um I'm always willing to talk with members about this stuff and you know if you're a member, hit me up on Slack, reach out, ask any questions, we can get you started. You know, also you're welcome to email me. That's a great way to just talk about things. If you just want to jump in and start looking at the tool we can give you access right now, uh we, we don't automatically just provide it to everyone because you know, like like I said, we're still kind of building this thing up and seeing what we can do with it. But if you reach out to support at rhisec.org, we uh, can, can add you, and you can, using our SSO, log right in and, and, and look around. So that's probably the, the best way.
1: Terrific. Thanks very much, Brad. That's uh, Bradley Logan, our Director of Security, Engineering, and Integration. Thank you very much. And JJ Josing, our Principal Threat Researcher. Thanks for that. I, it's really phenomenal that we have another resource to help members get a comprehensive view of their threat landscape. Speaking of threat landscape, I do want to switch gears just a little bit here and talk to another member of our intel team who is focused on getting alerts about the threat landscape out to our members. Hopefully, you've seen his great blog posts and his regular updates on member exchange. Lee Clark, our cyber threat intel analyst and writer. Thanks for joining us, Lee. What up? Last night, for you, but during the day for them, you hosted our our second annual virtual Asia-Pacific workshop, which took place, as I said, in the morning, India Standard Time. But really, we had attendees from India all the way over to Australia. And part of it was focused on threats specific to the APAC region. So I ask you, what are some of the differences you're seeing between the common threats impacting Asia and those that may be impacting Europe or the Americas and more focused on here?
4: Sure. So the the key trends are kind of interesting, right? The, the major trends that we see for the APAC region, both from our internal numbers and from external uh, sources, like the Verizon report we recently uh, did a comparison of our stats with theirs, what we're seeing there, the major trend is social engineering, like phishing and spear phishing specifically, and stolen credentials are far and away the most common infection vectors that organizations report seeing uh that's just because they work Phishing works right? right when you start to talk about differences in the trends what we see in the asia region that is different from us here in north america or europe uh ransomware tends to be a little less prevalent in the apec region it's still there it's still a major concern but it's not as an intense and widespread as it is here, and in the Asia region, we're seeing more ransomware as a service because threat actors can basically build a tool and rent that tool out to other threat actors rather than doing the work of building the tool and then going out and finding people to infect with the tool. w be money cut your work in half that way right two of the big trends that are interesting and have sort of region specific implications. Are denial of service attacks and website defacements. One of the things Verizon talked about was denial of service attacks are really, really common in the Asia Pacific gaming community. So, specifically against gambling organizations, casinos, uh, big hotels. That's interesting because there are a number of financially motivated cyber criminal groups that operate in the APEC region, but there are a larger number of industrial espionage, cyber espionage, APTs. It's it's the main motivation you see among threat actors in the APAC region is cyber espionage or industrial espionage. So waging a denial-of-service attack would align more to a threat actor interest than what you would see from a financial actor. But what's interesting is you wouldn't normally expect a state-backed attacker to attack a casino unless – the idea is you know to generally increase the prevalence of attacks across the surface right to make everyone aware that you're there you're big right. you're bad you're powerful and and you can cause people problems right, right. create a little chaos right right uh, as opposed to just taking people's money which which is the main you know goal of a of a cyber criminal. The second part of that is, is website defacement. Website defacement is way more prevalent in the APAC region, which is interesting. In many cases, it's uh, politically motivated. There's a case just yesterday reported of uh, of an Indian news station being defaced with political messaging by what appear to be pro-Pakistani actors. Oh, right. Interesting. Um, the interesting thing about that is website defacement is often very easy because the public-facing websites of organizations are often far less secured than their internal infrastructure. So it's low-hanging fruit. It's easy to do, and there, there's just motivation out there to, to get these messages across in a way that feels gratifying and, and sort right. of aggressive, right?
1: Right. It's very unsophisticated, and you really get more of a kind of a PR hit than anything else, yeah. than, than any lasting damage, because also pretty easy to fix. Yeah, yeah. Right. Once it's done. So when when we think about at least from our membership in Asia Pacific, we have a couple of companies that are based there, but we also have companies that either have operations there from a retail standpoint or simply just have um information security teams there. So when you're thinking about those different groups and specifically companies that are headquartered in the APAC region, experiencing different challenges than companies with a more limited presence there, what what are the differences there? Would you say?
4: Yeah, so it's all going to be in the attack surface and in the threat profile, right? And uh, especially in in the nature of your organization. A retail company that has a call center or data center or security operations center uh, in India will need to secure that aspect of their operations and focus on the threats that that would try to target those specific parts. But for a company that is headquartered and fully operates in the APAC region, you have to worry about security of every aspect of your organization, you know, physical security, employee-human security, uh, anti-fraud security, a- a- everything that you would think of that would involve securing your operations, all of that is in scope as opposed to just making sure that your uh, your network operations center doesn't get hacked. Right. So. It's a it's a matter of scale and it's a matter of focusing on specific threats that would come to those things like uh, corporate VPN vulnerabilities and things like that, as opposed to the, the whole store.
1: Right, right. So then even for companies that don't have an actual presence in the region, there are intersecting like cyber, as you're talking about, cyber criminal geopolitical changes that really have potential to impact the entire retail and hospitality sectors. So what would your advice be for our members
4: on keeping up with the threat landscape as a whole? So there's going to be three main points to to this, like a three-pronged approach to sort of best defend against these things. And the, the first is cyber hygiene. By being proactive and alert in your defense posture, you can often eliminate the vast majority of cyber attack attempts especially from low sophistication actors, just closing as many doors as possible and shutting off as many vulnerable points as possible will prevent the vast majority of attacks. And at that point, what you have to worry about are the are the attackers who really know what they're doing and are well-resourced, right? The second is to keep up vigilance in the open source area and in your internal threat feeds to create your internal infrastructure in a way that allows you to get real-time intelligence and adapt and use that intelligence to change your your network configurations in real time to adapt to threats as they come at you. And then the last one is going to be uh, using us. You're a member of RHISAC. Get involved in the, in the sharing spaces. It's what our community is specifically designed for and it's what the APAC workshop community is specifically designed for is for this region. The best way to accomplish those first two points about being proactive and designing your infrastructure For cyber hygiene, the best way to do that is through collaborative security, and that's what we're poised to do here at RHI side. So get involved in the discussions on member exchange and Slack. You'll learn a lot about how other people are defending themselves and being involved in the APAC community as we build it and move forward. Those things will will help train your security people and, and train your decision makers in ways that the entire community is protecting itself, right?
1: As JJ said earlier, sharing is caring. Lee Clark, thank you very much. JJ, Bradley, thank you as well for joining us. Uh, really appreciate the update.
0: We're gonna take a quick break and hear a message from our sponsor, Fortinet. Stick around because after that, Fred talks to me about how CyberGRX makes risk assessment slightly less painful.
1: Today's show is brought to you by Fortinet. Fortinet provides retailers with top rated cybersecurity solutions covering the expanding attack surface. Advantages include centralized visibility and management, lower TCO, and top performance. Proven threat protection and seamless fabric integration delivers better, faster response to attacks across the entire network, including point-of-sale systems and other devices carrying sensitive information. And Fortinet helps simplify compliance with PCI DSS and other regulations. As digital innovation and the need to provide always-on customer experiences drive network transformation, retail cybersecurity has become more vital. It's essential to have a security partner that can provide simplified security and networking to keep customers' data safe and enable a superior consumer experience. For more information, contact the Fortinet team at retailfortinet.com. At Welcome
0: back, everybody. I'm here with Fred Knipe, president of CyberGRX, now that I've learned the correct pronunciation of his last name. So, Fred, thank you for joining us today. And why don't I turn it over to you to just give us a little bit of information about yourself and some background on CyberGRX.
5: Sure. Thanks, Susie, and and I appreciate the correct pronunciation. (laughs) Um, So, thank you. I'm the founder and CEO of CyberGRX. Prior to this, I ran security for Bridgewater Associates, uh, the world's largest hedge fund, and then spent years in consulting and such before that. CyberGRX, it's a a third-party cyber risk management platform built on the concept of a one-to-many exchange where we do one high-quality, thorough cyber risk assessment of a company. That data then is validated through our partnerships with Deloitte or KPMG, and that data resides on our exchange. It can be shared or accessed multiple times, really helping provide efficiency in the way data is shared uh, amongst customers and third parties today such that a single assessment of, you know, whomever can be shared by all RHISAC members. You know, some companies have now shared their cybersecurity assessment upwards of 600 times. And so they're able to really reduce the number of times they have to respond to questionnaires. And the standardized data that we have allows companies to really scale their programs. You know, those who used to only be able to do 100 assessments a year can now do a 1,000 or so and really start to manipulate and use that information.
0: One of the things that we've been really working on with CyberGx and thank you for your support, is harnessing that information on a benchmark product. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that's working?
5: Sure. And it's really interesting because our core offering, our core approach, is really about helping companies evaluate and manage the ecosystem of vendors they have, third parties and we've really built there are tools to help prioritize and flow through there but as part of that process we've now done validated assessments of over 10,000 actually close to 11,000 companies today and that's an incredible data set and so while it's not our core offering we do have the ability to provide you know incredible benchmarking capabilities and you know in the conversations with yourself and then the rest of the RHISAC team Realize that's area that people are constantly looking for relevant information. It's easy to find simple benchmarks here, but they're so broad or really not relevant to your same peer group or appropriate ecosystem. The thought was to say we can leverage the CyberGirects data and we do assessments on any company you could imagine. It's, you know, AWS, Google Cloud, all the way down to small law firms you've never heard of. A lot of, uh, retailers are franchisees of other larger providers or other and actually have gone through our assessment process. We've done assessments of many retail companies. What I thought was a really brilliant idea was to say, let's actually look at RHISAC members themselves and have them go through as if they're a third party, go through our CyberGRX assessment process to create a bespoke benchmark for RHISAC members where we can then have that as well as Layer in some of the other data we have externally from other companies that might not be part of the RHI stack, and so you can say, here's a you know small group, here's how you look, and then if you extend that out to 200 whatever plus companies, here's it looks very different, and it helps really get that valuable and actionable set of benchmarks for people to work with. Yeah,
0: and you're right. I mean, everybody wants to kind of see where they stand, how they compare. And I know you break it down into various controls, which I think is would be really useful and a lot of great information for our, our members. And part of that, and I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about the predictive risk profile because of the number of assessments you've had and and what goes into all of that predictive risk score.
5: Yeah. Well, one thing I, I realized I didn't mention before is one thing is a benchmark on controls. Who, yeah. who has what, and that's. But one of the things that CyberGirects has done, and once again, this we use for our consumers of the data to say, okay, a third party has these controls. These are the ones they have, they don't have. Let's now apply the MITRE ATT&CK framework to say which of those are relevant, which ones are more easily exploited earlier in a kill chain, or if I'm curious about ransomware only, here are the controls that would be most relevant, etc. cetera. We can apply that same concept to the benchmark. So you can look at here of my peer group, to say here are the ones that have whatever SSO or whatever it might be, but also here's my susceptibility to ransomware as compared to my peer group or my susceptibility to Russian wiper malware or things of that sort. And so once again, it's just another lens to look through, and we've already worked with some RHISAC members to talk to their boards about exactly that. They're interested not just in what controls do I have, but what's my susceptibility to different things. And so I think that's another kind of iteration, if you will, on the benchmark concept.
0: Yeah, that's a great point to make. And I and I was going to bring up that some members are using this with their board for some board presentations or discussions and things along those lines. So, great powerful information. So, thank you. Now tell us about the predictive risk yeah. profile because I think that's really fascinating.
5: So, one of the things we realized is um, you know, we have about 11,000 companies, our typical net new customer comes to us and says, "I have a thousand third parties typically around half of them are already on our exchange and weighted towards the ones that you know, the DocuSigns, the World, AWS, et cetera. And then there's about the other half that we don't. And our process is we, CyberGRX, will go out and and bring them onto the exchange, but that takes time, sometimes very quick, sometimes it takes a longer period of time. What we realize is we want to be able to give that data as quickly as possible. So we took our 11,000 and said, we can use this to help identify or predict how another company, a new company, might uh, answer that same question set. The way we do that is we look at externally visible information on a company. So we look at what's their revenue, their employee base, their region, the industry they're in. What does Risk Recon, or one of our partners, say about them? What does Recorded Future, one of our other partners, say about them? And that creates what we'll call an external profile. This is what they look like from the outside in. We take that external profile, we go back to our exchange and say, who else looks like this mm-hmm. from the outside in? that We already know what they truly look like on the inside, and we develop a cohort of about a hundred companies and we use those companies to weight a Monte Carlo simulation where we just run a thousand iterations to say, okay, you know, 72% of them have SSO, 46% do this, et cetera. What does that look like? And it comes up with a predicted assessment. And if you want to get into the, uh, the nerdy statistics around it, the wider the distribution, the lower our confidence. It means there's, you know, a lot of variance. If it's a tight distribution, we get very high confidence. We are now averaging around 85% predictive accuracy. So it is it can be really powerful to say, you know, I wouldn't bet my career on that, but it would be if I now have a thousand third parties, CyberDirect is able to tell someone, here's 500 or so that we've gone through our whole validating process, and here's the other 500 in the exact same construct but a predicted view lower confidence, but you can now look at that whole ecosystem of a 1,000 and apply the threat scenarios and other things that you might be able to do.
0: Yeah, and I guess it goes to prioritization too, you know, based on your predictive score of those, who should I be focusing on, you know, with limited resources and things like that,
5: correct? Exactly right, exactly right, because once again, no no one is doing full assessments. I was talking to a bank yesterday that has 35,000 third parties, of which they're only able to look at 2,000 right now, and this Mm -hmm. is Probably one of the most respected banks out there. And so no one is able to actually go and look at that. But if you can have a better or um, methodology to prioritize and get higher confidence, you're focusing on the right areas. And risk management is about prioritization and, and reducing the highest probability of risk. And so you'll never get to perfect, but you're able to kind of use tools like this to really drive attention and focus.
0: We had a group of CISOs in town a couple weeks ago, and there was some conversation about crowdsourcing and how this could support each other. So can yep. you tell us a little bit about that concept and how that would apply here with CyberGRX?
5: Sure. And so it's a if I mention the concept, of if we do one assessment and allow it to be used multiple times, if that data is now being used by multiple consumers, so mm-hmm. for example, it's uh, Stripe or some of that sort that I'm going to assume a lot of retailers use. The benefit to the third party is much greater because they're now able to say, I can share this with not one, two or three, but actually with 30 or with 300 or whatever the number is. And uh, so you create real value for the third party, which drives them to really engage on that and keep that data updated as fresh as possible and keep going uh, on the platform. In fact, we find, I mentioned before, some companies see the value right away and they'll run through the assessment process and be done in a week others will resist. They're like, I don't want to do another assessment. I don't understand what your exchange is, et cetera. If you're able to go and say, it's not just retailer one asking, it's actually these seven retailers, these two hotel chains, and these coming through, it it immediately makes it a much more valuable experience for the third party. So you get greater adoption, greater um, data there. Another really interesting aspect, as I mentioned, you know, we use our predictive assessment to provide that early view but the uh, the gold standard is is our validated our completed assessment one of our uh, members and just mentioned in the conversation you're referring to said you know when they add a new third party if that company has already gone through the process for someone else they're readily available on the exchange within 24 hours he in this case has detailed granular information to be able to move forward think about that you took a procurement cycle from whatever weeks down to literally 24 hours yeah and so his, his view was the more of you guys using CyberGirects, the higher probability that that net new third party I work on is already on the exchange. And so you get that shared benefit across uh, the broader ecosystem of collaboration. And once again, this is a, you know, I was talking to uh, someone the other day, you know, like how did you know or why did you start CyberGirects? And it was one of the crazy experiences where the people who collect the data hate the experience and the people who provide the data hate the experience. Like, okay, there's a problem to be solved here. And if we can come up with something that is more efficient for the providers of information and then the users of information at at the uh, RHISAC. I'll I'll put one other ancillary benefit is one of the things I've been struck with, why we really enjoy working in the retail sector, is there's a a broader sense of community. And I know RHISAC pulls that together. You know, the big guys out there, the brand names that everyone knows, when you talk to them, they want to help the community as well as themselves. It's not, and it's how, how can I support this? So, one of the things we see is when, you know, the targets and the Walmarts of the world say, I want you to do something, there's a high probability people are going to do that. So that company's now on our exchange. When a small retailer no one's ever heard of comes on and asks for access to that data, where typically that company would have been like, I don't have time to do this for you. They're now, oh, I'll just authorize you on CyberGrex. And that company can now build a world-class program effectively leveraging the strength of the larger members of the RHI SEC. So you create yeah. a... An opportunity for the community to really support the whole ecosystem.
0: Yeah, I know. And it's great, especially in smaller companies. As we all know, it's they're strapped. And uh, so if we can leverage the power of the community to help everybody, I know we're going to have some conversations in our third-party working group on this. It came up. You've got some champions in there who want to bring it up to the group. So we're looking forward to continuing that conversation with you. That sounds great. Um, So back to the benchmark. I mean, I think we've already talked about uh, it's uh, a great opportunity. It is a little bit painful. You have to go through the assessment, as, as you acknowledged, yep. and it is uh, it is detailed. But of that, they come out with such granular and great information. And uh, anything else that you can help bird people on to go through the, that little, little bit of pain to get the, the benefit of the reward on it?
5: Well, once again, it's one of those things that the more people who participate, the better it gets. Yeah. And so – you know, if, they, if we can get whatever percentage of the of the RHI stack to participate, that, that makes a much more robust benchmark for everyone to rely upon. A couple other things that I think are, are interesting is, yes, you're right, going through the CyberJRx process, I wish it were, you know, just wonderful. It, it, it takes time. It takes energy to do it. Um, but once you've done it, you're now going to be able to see a benchmark of where you stack up on all those different components. You'll be able to map your data. We have a, a tool on the platform called our Framework Mapper, where you can now say, I've always thought whether or not we might apply for CMMC. I'm not sure why, but or ISO,
3: certification
5: <laughs> or other things. So you can map that out. Or here's our susceptibility to new malware that's come out there. We've mapped that to our assessment frameworks. You can say, ah, that's interesting. I'm actually highly susceptible. So there's a there's some other ancillary benefits that would exist. Um, that is part of our argument. Is all readily available to to companies on the on the platform. You know, to the extent that you're being assessed by companies as a. Yeah. Uh, a franchise. It, it's an opportunity to share that information. The last I would say is it's a dynamic benchmark. In what it is is because when someone completes a CyberDirects assessment, that data goes live and then can be updated a week later, a month later, uh, a year later, whatever is the right cadence for that company. But what you're going to find is while I completed this, I have my benchmark for my board meeting on June 30th. I'll be able to go back and look and update my information to say, ah, here's where we stand now on September 30th. And it turns out that several companies moved up because they've improved their program. Their relative scale is different. And another RHISAC member just came in. They went through and updated their assessment right before their board meeting, and they changed. And they could show the deltas of how they were. We were previously at this percentile. We've moved up to this percentile over a three-month period. So you create that, once again, going back to board reporting. Yeah. And it's love benchmarks. It's just easy because when you don't fully appreciate or understand something, understanding how you stack up amongst a relevant peer group gives you a sense of confidence. Ah, you're top quartile. Got it. I feel much more comfortable than if you're bottom quartile. Um, and so. If you're able to say, here's where I am today, and then I'm going to be working on these three things that we expect to move up, and here's where we are next quarter and next quarter and next quarter, you've created a a means to communicate more effectively with your leadership team, your board, et cetera. So once again, it it comes down from keeping that data fresh and and, and going in and keeping that as an update, but I think it can be a really powerful benchmark for people to, to use for better communication around cyber risk.
0: And I know we have some members who are using CyberGRX as a way to – they're still developing their program. They they have a program that needs to grow and they know needs to mature, and they're using this as a way to show, hey, you're giving me this funding, and now you can see the results, right? You know, you can see the change in the benchmark, as you said, you know, because it is dynamic, and you can show where you need resources, and then if you get it, what those resources have provided,
5: yeah, and it's it's really the two sides of that coin are, you know, let me show you how we are below the benchmark, yeah. thus we need more funding, or let me show you how I am above the benchmark, thus I am kind of uh, validating the use of funds that I have done as you kind of go forward. So it, it it can be used on whatever is necessary as a CISO is going in, looking to kind of really build their program.
0: Well, we're really excited that it came out. We just you know saw it uh, released like a month ago or so, and, and some folks are using it. I do have to give a shout-out to uh, Dave Eslick of Chipotle, who I know has been pushing you on this and his help with the idea, and he's uh, you know, one of our board members, and he's a strong advocate and really appreciate his thought and vision of where this could take us. So I encourage our members to look into it. And I don't know if there's any any thoughts of what the next evolution could be, but I think the first part is let's get some folks uh, participating in it.
5: Yeah, no, and one, Dave's been fantastic, and he's yeah. – uh, his vision is great and then he'll, he'll call me, little I get a text like, hey, I've done it yet. Have you done it yet? And so it's, uh, alright, I'm, I'm on it, but it's, it's, it's great on that, that partnership there. On terms of evolution, there are a couple things that we are thinking about. One is working with you and your team on. We'll call more retail-specific kind of interpretations of the benchmark to say, okay. okay, here's here's a use case that is very specific to retail that we can look and see how you stack up amongst that group. And so it's a, it's once again, it's just a filtering effectively of the data, but creating that so it's just out of the box and readily available for our ISAC members. Uh, and the last thing is, you know, in, as any software company, we right now are in a, a kind of a beta version of this, which is you know got some manual elements to it that we're de- developing. We are now hardening that into the platform itself, so it becomes a much more user-friendly, go in and adjust as appropriate. Right now, we're building a lot of the stuff off of the platform data versus it's a UX functionality. That's that's something that we expect to have in the next couple uh, months.
0: Well, that's great. Well, good. Well, listen, it was great catching up with you again. Really appreciate your support of the industry, of the ISAC, and uh, what you're doing. And uh, we're really looking forward to keep moving this benchmark and getting more of kind of that crowdsourcing idea moving forward with our members.
5: That sounds great, Great, we're, we're really excited about it.
0: Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of the RHI Sec Podcast. We have a lot of fun presenting these to you, and I hope you guys are getting a lot of value out of it. Don't forget to subscribe to get notifications when new episodes are available. You want to be the first to hear it when they come out. Thanks.